No, I can't wait to be off HFS. We just need that. We just need that Pied Piper solution to come along. <laughs> Middle <laughs> out <laughs> encryption. That's the uh, yeah, that's the secret. Right. That's the secret. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, everybody. Welcome to this special West Coast edition of the More Than Just Code podcast. I'm your sometimes guest host, Greg Hugh, in San Francisco, California. And I'm joined by my fellow West Coasters just down the road from me in San Jose, California, Mark Rubin. Hey, everybody. And in Seattle, Washington, Jaime Lopez. How's it going? Tim is at the Air Canada Center at a concert, as usual. And Aaron, I believe, is here on the West Coast, but couldn't be bothered to dial in and join us so they send their regrets but they'll be back next week we hope so greg how are things going at uh i heard something about instagram it was where you ended up going yeah i am at instagram now congratulations thank you thank you i'm how uh, are you liking it oh, i'm enjoying it it's uh, Great. a small team it's kind of uh yeah. um i don't know what the word is but it's not like all the ios developers sit over here and the android developers sit over there but it's mm -hmm. sort of more team based so mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i'm working on the the video infrastructure team and so the ios guys and the android people and the backend people who all work on video stuff all sit together okay um, so it's kind of nice i guess it's nice. not so nice because sometimes if i have an ios question i wish all the ios developers did sit together and i could just turn around and ask them but right, uh, right. it's nice that the stuff that you're working on, um, if I'm curious about how Android works, I can, you know, he's right there. And if I want to know how the back end works, like they're right there. So yeah. I like that. So Greg, are you doing Objective-C or Swift? Objective-C. Okay. Yeah, that's, I just started writing it and it was fine. It's like muscle memory or riding a bike. You never forget, I guess. Right, right. So I yep. honestly have not really noticed. I did notice when I was going through an array and sort of filtering and i thought i sure yep. wish i had filter like swift array filter oh, yeah, yeah yeah that would have been awesome but i didn't have it so i had to do it the old-fashioned way with a mutable array and all that so well, you can always just use an ns predicate right yeah what's the performance like on that anyway uh, you know I, I couldn't give you a metric but okay. i've never noticed any any worse performance doing that than with um just a for loop yeah i believe it i mean that's what the predicate's doing behind the scenes right it's not like order of magnitude difference is kind of, I guess, what I'm getting at, right? Right. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah, I was never big on the predicates. That's a good, that's a good point, though. Um, mm -hmm. Everyone mm -hmm. always thinks predicates is core data, but I remember somebody mentioned something and I said, oh, you could use a predicate, like, um, you know, apply it to an array. And they were like, no, you can't. So I'm like, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you yeah. Can. yeah, you can. No, I do that all the time. I pretty yeah. much use it pretty much all, always instead of doing for loops these days. Interesting. Interesting. I don't, the only thing I don't yeah. like about it is it's kind of... I gotta get this right. A KVC style, stringly typed kind of when that's you're true. digging yeah. into it. That's the only thing I don't like about it. But otherwise, you know, it's, yeah. So yeah. it has to be with ob with real objects. You can't really do it with um, well. I mean, uh, more than primitive objects, I guess. So mm -hmm. I mean, you can use predicates with with things like strings, but it, it kind of defeats the the point. So it, it's it, it's definitely much more useful when you have objects that have properties and you want to filter by the properties. Yeah, sure. exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I think yeah. that's what I was doing as well. But yeah, I mean, mm -hmm. like to dig into the property is kind of KVC. I, it is using KVC behind the scenes, right? I assume. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah okay. Totally, totally KVC. Okay. Yeah. Yep. I think that would be the only, my only downside to it, but it does, it is much cleaner, I guess, for sure. Is there, mm -hmm. um, you know, when they say you shouldn't spin up an NS date formatter like every single time because it's very expensive to yes. uh, spin those up. Is that the same for an NS predicate? Mm -hmm. Are those expensive or no? 
Uh, they they are fairly expensive, probably not as expensive as a date formatter. Okay. But but there are some tricks to that. You can create the NS predicate once outside of your your filter. Uh, in fact, you only actually if you if you're going to use a, a filter on a predicate, you only need one predicate. Mm-hmm. Right. But if you were going to do a predicate inside of a for loop, mm-hmm. there's a way of setting it up so that you can create the predicate outside, but mm-hmm. have it be parameterizable. Right, and inside right. the for loop, you can just apply a directory of parameters okay. to change your predicate, and that's very fast. Okay. Is it, um, mm-hmm. I forget what the language is, like kind of SQL style where it's place these parameters yeah. or named parameters? It's, it's very SQL style. Okay. Yes. With question marks? Yes. Uh, oh, for you mean for placeholders? <laughs> yeah, for, is that how they do it? Uh, Wildcards. Uh, yeah. I'm trying to imagine how what it looks like now. I've, I've... So, no, for this for that kind of thing, uh, you mean when you're trying to replace it with a with a name parameter from a dictionary, that kind of thing? Yeah, you know, like SQL is like use... colon and then the name, or that's at least like how I yeah, learned no, it no, for like this, Oracle. It actually uses uh, uses the Objective C style, so uh, percent L. Uh, at sign. Oh, almost and like then, string replacement. Or, like a, yeah, oh, like a string with format style. Exactly. Got exactly. it, got it, got it. Yeah. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. not bad. Then. So it's um, position-based then, not name-based. That's right, yeah. Okay. Yep, yep, yep. Hmm. So it's almost like preparing... Uh, uh, actually, the... you know what? No, I, I take that back. Uh, you could do it both ways. When you, if you, if you just create a, a predicate sort of uh, raw, you know, without using this... this uh, uh, this passing the parameters, uh, you do use the the percent uh, at sign. Uh-huh. But if you do pass in a dictionary of parameters, then there is a different format, which I think is a. I'd have to look it up. But I think it is a dollar sign and then a name, uh, and then the name is in your dictionary of parameters that you pass in. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So dollar it's kind of a mixture name. of both, depending on. It, it may not be dollar sign again. I forget the syntax, but, but I'm looking it up, and yeah, you're right. They do dollar sign, and they do the name in like all caps, and then the dictionary version has like the camel case version. That's yes. What it yeah. Is. yeah. Okay. Cool. cool. I think probably the all caps is probably optional because it's probably case insensitive inside that thing. But don't quote me on that. Yeah, uh, that's just the way the example looks very weird, but I guess they just want to make it look like a like a variable. Interesting. I never, okay, the percent at sign version kind of looks familiar. But yeah, I think that's when you're creating it at runtime with kind of values that you want to plug in, kind of like right. string yeah. format. Yeah. But right. then the other one is right. more like SQL prepare, where you create this predicate with the dollar sign variable name, and then you just keep filling in different parameters. Okay. Right, okay. right. Yeah, so... So if you're if you're building the, credit, the predicate from scratch in the middle of the for loop every single time, mm-hmm. you could do it with the percent at sign, but that would be the slow way to do it because you have to create a new NS predicate each time. Right. So for that use case, you would you would want to create the single one outside of the loop mm-hmm. and then use this this uh, parameter replacement method inside the loop. Okay, that's predicate with substitution variables. For that's those, the one for those following yep. along at home. All right, I like yep. that. Yep. I like that. Mm-hmm. It does remind me of SQL. I remember when I learned SQL way back, and I was always like, why would you ever want to prepare a statement and then just call it? That seems, right, you know, right. why don't you just put the string right in line? I guess I was like the poster child for that uh, Bobby Tables XKCD comic and SQL injection. So hopefully mm-hmm. none of my old code from those days is still running. <laughs> I would say I would love to see something like Link that's a little easier to use than NS Predicate. Oh, that's a Microsoft technology, isn't it? It is. It, it's, uh, I it's have really heard good, good things about it. That's Link with a Q, right? Yes, L-I-N-Q, yeah. Yeah, I've heard good things about it, for sure. 
We got several questions about photo filtering and backend CDNs that I have no idea what they were talking about. But there was one good question from uh, at Third Beach. I believe that's Troy Hanna. Is that right? Yes, that would be Troy Hanna. All right. So Troy Hanna, that's at Third underscore Beach, asks, ask MTJC, if you had one piece of advice for a dev just starting out looking for the first job, what would it be? Good question. Maybe we can all go back in time and think about our own origin stories. Does anyone want to share some advice about um, what to do just starting out? Sure. My, my advice would be try to find something where you can just learn as much as possible. Don't worry so much about getting paid the most. Don't worry about working necessarily at the most you know high-profile company because it's really all about sharpening your pencils, learning your skills, uh, and just learning as much as you can about your trade. Uh, try not to get stuck in a situation where you're working on one small little piece of something uh, where you may become the world's expert in that thing, but you don't look at anything else because uh, it, the next time you have to work on something different, you know, you're, you have no experience there. So I would just say try to learn as much as you can. Yeah, I think for, for me it's somewhat similar from my advice in that um i think you know wherever you start with um you know whatever language whatever platform i think a lot of folks um i see them online you know stack overflow or slash dot or hacker news whatever the case may be people are, are are sort of hung up on this idea of like oh my gosh i have to learn like the one true language or use the one true platform and honestly, when you've been around long enough, you realize, oh, it's generally all the same stuff, just repackaged slightly differently. And so if you started to learn how to do development, you know, either as a hobbyist or in school or professionally, I wouldn't get too hung up if you're using Java, you're using Python, you're using Objective-C, you're using Swift. I think generally it's helpful to try to pick one that's relatively uh, modern and alive and has a, a community that you can you can lean on and, and ask questions from and learn from. But I wouldn't be too concerned of like, oh, wow, like once I learn Swift, I will never have to learn anything again, right? Because five to 10 years from now, we'll all be talking about how, you know, bird something or other is like the new hotness and, and all of our apps are moving to that. Yeah, I would tack mm -hmm. a little bit differently and speaking about looking for your first job and focus on the people side of it. I don't know what the exact statistic is, but I just may, I'll just make it up and say it's something like 80% of all jobs come from referrals and from knowing somebody. So I would say for me personally, being things like active on Twitter and writing on your blog or something like that, and just getting in touch with people online, because I worked from home for a long time, so I didn't actually meet people IRL, as they say, and I just met a lot of people online on Twitter and then maybe at a conference or something, run right into them. But I think that was a really good source of just you know, job leads and things like that. And if you're, if you start looking for a job, then your sort of close network, whatever you use, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, whatever it is, uh, is a really good source of job opportunities. If you are going to be start looking, or if you're going to start looking, because a lot of times jobs aren't posted and it's just people who are, you know, if I'm here with my team of 10 people and I know we need another two bodies, but we haven't gone around to posting it yet, but you know, um, a lot of times those 10 people will go out in their networks and find people to hire. So I guess in addition to the technical advice, that would be my sort of human advice is to say just to reach out and start building those connections now um, if you're just starting out. All right, let's move on to a little 
FU. We have, I think we've got a couple of things. Tim posted something on follow-up on what playground support, which I'm not entirely sure what that is, but there's a link listing all of the uh, different frameworks and kits that you can have in Swift Playgrounds that's on the iPad. I think when they demoed it on stage at WWDC, they were saying, oh, look, I built an entire game and I accessed AV kits and I accessed all like core graphics and all of the frameworks that are available right in the Swift Playground. And so this blog post on Medium just lists the some of the frameworks that Playgrounds do support. So it's not just I'm going to write a calculator app or something, but you can write pretty full-fledged apps within your Swift Playgrounds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what this is in reference to is, and I think it was the last show we talked about, the Swift Playground that's now available on the iPad, and we're wondering a couple of things. One, since Apple very clearly posed it as for kids in, in all the presentations uh, and, a, and a good uh, learning environment for kids, we're wondering if, if that's all it was, if there was more to it than that, and is it really possible to develop a full app inside of it? And I think this is saying that... Uh, the answer to that question is no. It's not. It's not just for kids. There's there's a lot of stuff in there. The second question was: Is it possible to develop an entire full app that's suitable for submission to the App Store uh, using the Playground? And decided that well, it doesn't have things like Interface Builder. It doesn't have a lot of the other tools that are associated with with building a full complete app. And I think, I haven't read this article, but I'm scanning it now. I think what this is saying is that our assumption was correct, that it's in terms of the tooling, uh, it probably is not ready for prime time for doing a fully-fledged App Store submittable app. You would still need to interface with Xcode in some way to do that piece of it. Although it does look like pretty much most of the frameworks that you would need to actually do the developments seem to be included, which is great. Mm-hmm. So it's a good start. Yeah, I don't think you can have your app running sort of full screen, right? It's always a kind of side-by-side view. You can't have your code and then say, okay, clear out the code and run the thing, and then it takes over the full screen and just runs your app, right? It's always... I haven't used it, but I, but I think you're right, yes. Okay. I mean, because you're always... Yeah. It's running inside the Swift Playground app. It's not like you say build and run, and it installs a new app on your home screen. So I think right. it is like they demoed on stage. It was like the code on the left, and then your stuff is running on the right. So I'm curious about like if you had a UI view and you asked its bounds or something, it would just be half the screen, I assume. And there's it doesn't really shift around. I haven't tried anything that complicated in my Swift playgrounds yet. I've only just done. Yeah, I don't know. That that would be an interesting thing. Can you define a UI window and have everything be with respect to that UI window and have it? be you know virtually sized the normal way i don't know yeah i know for like sprite kit i think when you set up a sprite sprite kit scene then you say you give it like a almost like a render target like you can say five thousand by five thousand or whatever and then it'll render mm-hmm. down to whatever your actual screen size is so i imagine it does something similar again just for sprite kit you could say i want to render my scene and here are the sprites that i want and my character moving left and right but then you know on the actual ipad you only have whatever, a 400 by 600 pixel points space or whatever it is. Um, mm-hmm. so I think that's how it works. You can't really go full screen, is kind of my point, and have a standalone app yet. But yeah. there is supposed yeah. to be some way to move your Swift Playground over to Xcode, kind of handoff style, I think. I haven't tried that either, but I think they mentioned that um, towards the end of the one of the presentations. Yeah, I think the, the tone I get a little bit from some of the discussion around, you know, is Swift Playgrounds just for kids, I think, in, in my mind, misses a little bit of the 
here's the possibility and here's, here's what it is right now. Uh, and I think partially because uh, of two things. One is the way that, as you guys mentioned, that Apple really heavily pushed the, this is so easy, children could learn how to do this sort of thing. And then it's also, um, even as as relatively feature complete as this is, it's not even vaguely close to being what you get with Xcode on macOS, right? So there's, I think there's a little bit of disappointment there that people feel. And, and I think Tim had mentioned the last time something to the effect of like, you know, this is kind of like your sketchbook, right? You still use it as a legitimate professional tool when you're you know, not sitting in front of your Mac, right? You're, uh, I think mm-hmm. you brought up Ayaka Nonaka's example of being on the train and, yeah. and like, yeah, I just kind of want to tinker with stuff kind of like the way you would as, as an artist or, a, you know, engineer trying to, you know, figure out some sort of equation or something like, I just want to have a sketch pad to deal with something and then prove out the concept and then move over to my, you know, the big dog tools to, to do the, the full implementation. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people did that, myself included, with playgrounds in Xcode, right? Rather than, oh, I've got this massive project and I want to try something out. So I'm going to bring it in the class. And instead, it's like, no, forget it. I'm just going to make a playground and try it what I need to. And then once I figured it out, kind of apply that to the main project. Exactly what you were saying, Jaime. But now it's like you can do that on the go on a separate device, right? Right. And having said all that, it, it, it really is a great educational environment. Uh, it is it is perfect for kids in schools learning how to how to code. They're not going to, in most cases, they're not they're not really uh, trying to build something that's meant for production that they're going to sell or 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 uh, or ship. They're just trying to learn how the how it works and learn some basics. So it, it actually is really good for that. Mm-hmm. And I think shipping sort of additional code, starter code or libraries. Um, along with the playground, like for example, in the demo in the keynote, there was like the character moving around, and it's like, okay, somebody wrote all the code for that. You know, there's no such thing as mm-hmm. left and right and jump in UI kit. Like somebody had to write that, but being able to ship a set of starter code to help with the teaching, I think, is pretty cool. And yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, Xcode playgrounds do that, so I think it's great that the Swift playgrounds um, on the iPad will do that. Do you guys have iOS 10 yeah. on an iPad? installed and you've played around with it i do not no i haven't used it at all yet okay what i haven't you, i haven't um as far as ios 10 goes i've been considering picking up a um an iphone se and using that as sort of like the here's the latest and greatest beta builds testing because i'm i'm the kind of person that doesn't really put any of the betas on my primary phone because i will be severely disappointed if something goes wrong with it <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah um and i don't have an extra ipad so i'll probably have to pick up um, like a cheap mini or something, maybe a, a, a used or refurbed one to, to do similar type things. Okay. I have an mm-hmm. iPad mini retina, the first retina. I think it's the iPad mini two. And I did sacrifice it to the iOS 10 gods. I was thinking maybe I'll get an, a 9.7 iPad pro and then use that as my iOS 10 device. But, um, I figured before I go ahead and spend all that money, I'll just install it on the iPad mini and, uh, it's worked out pretty well, but I've only played around with the Swift playgrounds a little bit, just some pretty simple stuff, but maybe I'll have to spend more time, um, with it now that I have it installed. Now is, is sorry, is, is your goal in doing that just to, to play in general, uh, to, to play with the, with the new tools or to do some development in iOS 10? No, it was all uh, Swift asked, playground. That's all I wanted. That's why I put oh, it on the iPad. Okay. I do have an yeah, extra yeah. iPhone and I would have put it on there, but I wanted Swift playground. So that's why I put it on the iPad. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yeah. I find that uh, for the I've started doing a little bit of work with iOS 10 on some you know, some uh, sample apps that I'm thinking about building, and I'm finding that the simulator is actually pretty good. Uh, 
I'm playing around with the new iMessages or messages or whatever it's called, you know, with the with the custom stickers type of functionality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the simulator is, is actually pretty nice for that. It's it's set up in such a way that you can't actually send out messages, although apparently you can on a real device. Maybe not so much with the with the extension. I I, I don't know because I haven't tried it, but. But with the simulator, it's nice because they've actually got. They showed this in the in the in the sessions at WWC. They've actually got two sort of sample users on there, and if you send a, a message from one of them, it shows up in the other one. So you can kind of flip back and forth and see how things are working. So, so that actually you know maybe even work better for development than than having it on two real iOS ten devices because you have to keep switching back and forth. Well, that's neat. They really made it easy to test message apps they did that feels like the kind of thing that they would forget to do and then maybe add in ios 11 but they got it right in beta one huh yeah well i found one thing that's not 100 percent perfect uh because the two users in the messages you know the the fake users in the messages app are hard-coded you can't actually choose who to send the message to Uh, in other words there's no two field right you can't actually send a message at all it only goes to the other one automatically so if your app depends on knowing who it's being sent to, which you actually have some access to now, which you didn't really before, uh, it, it it just doesn't uh, it just doesn't work yet. So it's not 100% perfect for development, but but it's got some pretty cool stuff already. Interesting, uh, Mark. Quick question: I I could have sworn that one of the sessions I was watching, I think it was the engineering privacy for your users session, mentioned yep. that you yep. don't that you get some sort of like. Um, UUID yes, or opaque yes. token. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And what that is, is you have a reference on your device that is always the same for that person, uh, no matter which messages you send from. So it, it, unless you delete the app from your phone and then reinstall it, then it changes. So say, say you know that you said you choose who you send it to, right, from your messages app. And you get back three identifiers for the three people that you sent it to. Those three identifiers will always refer to the same person that you sent it to. So you don't necessarily know uh, exactly who it was, but there is sort of a you know a, a, a identifier name, right? The the public name that's available. So you can keep track of of some things about who has done what using the using uh, using the messages. Uh, although you're right, it's it's not permanent and it's not uniquely identifying completely. You know, you can't tell exactly who this was. So in other words, you can't send out a, a complete spam email and then figure out who came back. But if you're sending it to a small group of people and you have some other independent way of knowing who they are, then you can at least keep track of who did what within that within that set, if that makes sense. Right, right. So you can distinguish users within the, the conversation so you don't like trample messages and, and, and everything, but you wouldn't know like right. purely from that identifier that, Oh, this is Jaime and he's in the Seattle area and he likes chocolate. Right. That's well, you, yeah, I, I think you would know it was Jaime if you have Jaime in your address book and you sent it from your address book. So I think that identifier, I, I have to double check this, but I, but I think the way it works is I think that identifier is connected to your representation of that person. So if it's someone that you send from your address book, It'll tell you that that person in your address book did something, responded. 
Make sense? Yeah, yeah. So so say say I know that I have in my address book, I have Jaime in my address book, and I send Jaime a, a message. And then it comes back with the identifier one, two, three, four, five, six. Well, I can look up who one, two, three, four, five, six is in my address book and find out that it's Jaime. But if you forwarded it to someone else and then that person replied again, and that third person is not in my address book, I wouldn't know who that was. Okay, got it, got it, yeah. Got it? Yeah, so it's all it's all contextual to the device that you're on, um, that you can right. map some things, but you can't extend it to multiple devices and, and figure out their exactly. chain. Got yeah. it. Right, right. All right. I've got one additional follow-up item from last week. Last week it was reported on this very show that uh, the number of Swift apps, the number of apps with a little bit of Swift in the App Store was 10,000, but that number is actually 100,000. So more than just code regrets the error. Although Tim says the podcast regrets nothing, so he might cut that out. But that <laughs> boosts the sort of the low end of the number from half a percent to about 5% if we count 100,000 apps out of 2 million apps. Um, but then I had complained on Twitter that that's not even accurate because you have to consider apps that have been not just built, but apps that have been updated since September of 2014 or thereabouts. And so Tim's quick back-of-the-envelope calculation said that in September 2014, there were about, I guess, 1.4 million apps in the store. And at this past keynote, Tim Cook reported that there were 2 million apps on the store. That leaves a delta of about 600,000 apps. So Tim said that's 100,000 of 600,000 apps, 16.7%. But that doesn't take into account um, apps that have been removed from the store. Or again, that doesn't take into account updates. So I would say the range of the percentage of apps on the store that have some Swift in them is somewhere between 5 and 16%, which, depending on how you look at it, is not a lot or a lot already. Um, but that's just, you know, it could just have one class in Swift, and Apple says, hey, they've got Swift, those Swift runtime, so there it is. So that's what the numbers are looking at from our point of view. I'm sure Apple has a more exact number, but they're not telling. At least they're not telling us. Where did we get that 100,000 number from last time? I don't remember. It was in the keynote or, or the platform, say the oh. union. It was 100,000, but somebody had remembered it as 10,000. That was all. I think that was oh, me yeah. because we I, I didn't have notes in for not the WWDC keynote stuff right in front of me. And so I was trying to remember off the top of my head. I said, like, oh, it's like 10,000. And I was off by a magnitude, an order of magnitude. Um, <laughs> so the point isn't well, that it's is, is interesting, yeah. but, uh, you, you know, it, it's still, again, it, it I think the way I saw it at the keynote is that it was kind of semi-implied, like, oh, look, look how much is, is in Swift. And I'm like, well, no, that's, you know, if it includes one single class where, you know, somebody somewhere on giant projects has probably tinkered with it, that's, that's interesting, but it's not, it's not the same, right? We're uh, yeah. haphazardly trying to, uh, to set it straight and, and did a really poor job of that. So sorry about that. I think there was, if, if it were a hundred thousand complete, new apps from scratch written completely in Swift, yeah. that would be something. Indeed. That would be news. If you said 5% yeah. of all the apps on the store, out of the 2 million even, that's fine, are written entirely yeah. in Swift, yes, that would be a big deal. But I think Tim Cook did say, oh no, maybe he didn't say, he said something like 100,000 apps and some from some big companies like Twitter and something, something else. So yeah, he did name some companies, but yeah, that doesn't say sort of how much of the, how much of the app is in, is in Swift. So that's a good point. Hey, 
more than just code listeners. Are you ready for Indie Dev Stock? This September 16th and 17th in Nashville, Tennessee, at the Gaylord Opryland Resort and Convention Center, some of the brightest minds will be attending Indie Dev Stock. Join us for two days and learn from the industry's best designers, developers, and entrepreneurs. Professionals like Greg Heo, Ellen Shapiro, Janie Clayton, Simon Allardyce, and many more. Our speakers will share their stories, experiences, and insights with you. They'll discuss the challenges indies face and, more importantly, how to overcome them. But you don't have to be an indie to attend. Indie Dev Stock is made for everyone, whether you're just starting out or have been an indie for years. Indie Dev Stock is about making connections and sharing new ideas. While you're there, explore Nashville and Music City, the place where music is inspired, written, recorded, and performed. For more details and to register for Indie Dev Stock, visit IndieDevStock.com. We hope to see you there. All right. What else are we talking about today? I put in a link about the new Apple file system, APFS. They can't reuse AFS, or they can't use AFS, unfortunately, because that's already taken. But there was an article on Ars Technica, a very pretty in-depth and long article called A ZFS Developer's Analysis of the Good and Bad in Apple's New APFS File System. And when they talked about the new Apple File System on stage, and they mentioned things like um, snapshots and uh, copy on write, or I forget exactly what they said, but as they listed off these features, then I thought, wow, this sounds just like ZFS, which Apple was working on. I forget when that was. Was that Snow Leopard 10.6, if memory serves? And so that would be, what, four or five years ago that they had mentioned it? And uh, so anyway, when they were talking about APFS, I thought, oh, maybe they took ZFS or the core of it, because it is under some kind of open source license, and maybe they just kind of put some Apple-ish ideas in there. Um, but this seems to suggest that they did not, because this, again, is by a ZFS developer who looked at the um, Apple file system and kind of gives his take on what he thinks of it and what, how it compares to the ZFS. So it's an interesting read if you're a file system nerd. The one point I would make about, um, the one important point I took from it was that it was very ZFS-like and does have a lot of modern, modern features, but in true Apple fashion, Apple is really focusing on their needs. So for example, it may not make a very good general purpose file system, but it's very good for SSDs. And so Apple is kind of saying, well, watch TV, the phone, and even Macs now are moving to all SSDs. So we don't have to worry about spinning rust anymore. So forget about it. That's what we're going to go for. So I think some of the complaints in the article were about like how this isn't good for general purpose stuff. Like you wouldn't just install this on your Linux server, maybe. Um, but again, I think Apple is really targeting themselves and saying, no, we need to make this good for us, and it's not for general use to install on your free BSD server or whatever. Um, so yeah, again, if you're well, interested in file systems, then check it out. Yeah, one could argue that Apple's looking forward as as they tend to do, and you know, in five years, it may be, or, or 10 years, whatever the number is, it may be that there are no more physical disk drives, magnetic disk drives anymore because the price point will have changed and, and SSDs are just cheaper for pretty much every application. Mm -hmm. So, sorry, assuming that that point is coming, then then this operating system may have more general applicability than it, than it does right now. 
but uh, but overall, actually, I, I read a, a good chunk of the article. I didn't have time to read the whole thing, and and I agree, it's it's actually a pretty interesting read. Uh, yeah, I'm not I'm not an expert by any means on on file systems, but but it was pretty interesting to read about some of the stuff that's going on under the hood there. So I recommend it as well. Yeah, I've I've not read this particular um, Ars Technica article, and I'll, I'll definitely have to do that. Um, I think a couple of things that have come up in general conversation around uh, APFS, and I preface this by saying I'm definitely not a file system guru, so I vaguely know what I'm talking about in this area, but that's not going to stop me. <laughs> One thing was like around the, the data integrity pieces and what sort of inceptions it makes for um, checksumming and, and other, you know, like CRC type things. Yeah. Um, that from some conversations, it sounded like, well, it, some of these are, are more realistic problems if you aren't Apple and spend the extra $5 on, you know, the microcontroller the, or the, 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 the RAM or SSD flash drives that are high enough quality to not have to deal with this problem. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I think that was one of the complaints from the ZFS guy was that, oh, ZFS has checksums. You know, if you have bit rot, then we can detect it. And it only costs whatever it was, 16 bytes per, you know, 100K or whatever it is. So why wouldn't you spend that? But then, yeah, I think like you said, Jaime, the counterpoint is Apple is like, well, we buy high quality stuff. And in our testing, you know, we don't get bit rot or significant bit rot. So it's not a concern, so we don't need it. So that feels very much like a, you know, if you're building a file system for the world, you may say, well, we should be safe and do checksums and, you know, automatic error correction. But Apple's like, no, nah, you know, we don't need it because the drives that we provision don't have that problem, so we're not going to do it. Right. And the other separate topic that people got really hung up on was the aspect of having, you know, shallow copies of things, um, particularly mm -hmm. for things that are sort of like seamlessly moved uh, onto the cloud or, you know, off of your device into the cloud and only brought you know, onto your device um, on some sort of magic, you're going to need it thing. Like you, you've used it recently or it's something you, you tend to open up this same spreadsheet, you know, at 4 p.m. on Tuesdays, that sort of thing. And I feel like people brought up not only really weird cases that are like, yeah, that's that's really hard to, to predict uh, that you're going to do the the case of, oh, but, I, you know, I, every July I go to the a cabin in the woods and I, and I need to edit this podcast. And I'm like, oh, come on, dude. Like, <laughs> that's a hard one, right? Like, obviously, like, it would be nice to have a feature that says, you know, ensure that this file is on my uh, my disk and and just move on with your life, right? Because I think they're they're wanting it to be completely... 100% magic. And that's hard, right? Like no matter what you do, if you have 10 terabytes of data that, that belongs to you and your hard disk or your SSD only supports one terabyte, guess what? There's 90% of your content <laughs> that might possibly be missing when you want it in an offline mode. Yeah. Seems like there's sort of an easy fix for that though. You could, couldn't you just flag or they could add the capability to flag a file of as being, uh, always available, and so it doesn't get put on the cloud. And so things like music and movies and things like that, which it would be nice to have always available, but not necessarily critical to have always available, those can be put up in the cloud. And things that you just absolutely have to have on your machines, you know, financial stuff or whatever that you can't do without, those could be critical and those don't go up. Yeah, I was I was curious about how much if they've looked at their stats for Fusion Drive because that was the kind of magical promise of that was that you have all of this you know you have this giant spinning disk 
and it would have your capacity, and then you have a smaller SSD, and that would be all your files that you use all the time, and then it would intelligently swap them back and forth, and it would always feel fast, but you would still have your terabyte of storage. I wonder if they've gotten gotten some of their smarts from that, and now this is sort of one step further to say, not, not, not even have a spinning disk, it's going to be up in the cloud. Um, so I wonder if they've been collecting stats on that, and maybe they've figured out how to do it intelligently yeah, but also I, I had one of those at one point actually mm-hmm. and and i found that it, it it really wasn't it never at, at least with the technology that i had and this was three or four years ago by now probably it never really quite lived up to the uh always feeling really fast oh. it, it still didn't feel that fast <laughs> uh, i never had one <laughs> um, so okay. okay yeah so I, I did the progression from a from just a regular hard drive to one of those hybrid drives to a full ssd and the the really big jump happened with the SSD, okay. without a doubt. Okay. It, it sort of wasn't that noticeable uh, going from the from the the full hard drive to the to the hybrid. Huh. I guess you could argue that it would have been much slower if I had stayed with the with the with the full hard drive, and and the hybrid allowed me to not perceive it as being getting worse uh, than it than it would have been. Uh, it, but yeah, you know, I, I don't know. Okay. And Jaime, to your point, in this in this article, if you scroll down to the data integrity section, there's a screenshot of some kind of panel, and it does split out applications, documents, GarageBand is a separate thing in the source list on the left, and it's mm-hmm. I think you can pick sort of what you want to put in the cloud and what you want to keep locally, or maybe it was Mark who was saying this. So I think you can say, uh, my mail is important to me, please keep it local, but photos, that's two gigs, not so much, that is okay to store in the cloud. So I think they have segmented it not just by folder, because, you know, that wouldn't be very Apple, but almost by application and saying, you know, mail is probably important, photos, maybe it's okay, movies, obviously, we can store in the cloud, GarageBand, I don't up to you, check the box or don't check the box. So it seems like they are mm-hmm. thinking about giving some options, but probably, I don't know, I'm sure if you did, you know, disk util something on the command line, you could flag, put the right bit on to, um, you know, make the file stay local. But it looks like Apple is going to, offer at least some kind of interface to um, let people do it. It looks like on like an application-by-application application basis. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that seems like a, a pretty reasonable compromise here. Mm-hmm. All right. Is that it for uh, ZFS and APFS? I think Jaime's got a... More to, more to be seen later. Yeah, right? exactly. Well, maybe okay. another two yeah. years? Is that what this article says? That they're targeting like 2019 or something? But I read somewhere that there are a whole bunch of... Oh, there's a funny command line flag if you want to install it. That's like, yes, it's like hyphen... Yes, I realize that th- I may lose data by using APFS or something like that. Something ridiculously long. <laughs> yeah, so that, yeah, and you have to yeah. do that to uh, get this. Um, I have been warned that APFS is pre-release and that I may lose data is the flag you have to put on disk util. So, And there are a whole bunch of things like you can't use it on your boot drive and you can't use it with this and you can't use it with that. So I think it's still at least a year or a couple years away. Mm-hmm. All right. Jaime's got an interesting, very interesting looking article about GraphQL. So I'll let him take it away. Yeah, so this is a blog post by um, Ordotharx from Artsy, and it describes how they're using um, GraphQL, the graph query language um, and runtime. Um, I think it's from Facebook. Yes, exactly, from Facebook. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I I found it kind of an an interesting approach, right? So it doesn't focus too much in this article about... um, you know, Facebook specific needs for it, but you can kind of infer it from, from the bit that's mentioned there, right? That this, this GraphQL sort of sits in between your mobile client or, or any client it doesn't have to be mobile. It could be a, a, you know, a web application 
and the sort of traditional APIs that that might be written, um, especially if you have a, a microservices architecture where um, authentication is one thing. Um, yeah, this bit of data around uh, movies is one service. This other one around favorites is totally different, or books is different. And in Artsy's case, they have some content that needs to be displayed sort of together, right? And and Orta talks about the fact that normally the way you handle this is is a couple different ways. You either make several different requests. So you, you go and you get some IDs from one service, and then you turn around and you call another service and help populate some more of that data structure that you need to throw on the screen. And that has the issue, of course, that like some, you know, network requests can go wrong. So the more of them that you do, the more likely it is that you're going to have problems stitching together the content you need. There's uh, performance and latency issues with that in terms of, you know, uh, opening and, and tearing down the, uh, the connections on the network. And it's, um, also uh, another pr- approach to do, you know, deal with that is to have a, you know, forget trying to, you know, keep things clean and, and perfectly oriented. You've just got a, okay, look, we know that the Android client or the iOS client needs this particular bit of content. Great. We're going to make a new endpoint that will return all of that content. And six months from now, when we decide that we need some other bit of weirdo content that doesn't normally go there, well, we're going to create another endpoint to deal with that. Uh, and the GraphQL side kind of approaches it from the, okay, if you have something that is stitching everything together, then you can really just ask for, look, I want, um, in this case, I want artwork and I want to know, is the price hidden and is this inquirable, which uh, apparently comes from you know, different services. And in, in here, it, it seems really interesting where you're not trying to do like API versioning, right? Of saying like, oh, well, okay, version 2.2 of this API will return those three things, but 2.1 does not. And 2.3 has this other element and we changed the data type and making it much more... Um, sort of easy to have context around what content am I asking for? And from the uh, APIs side, you know, being able to more logically reason about, you know, what is the the context and what is the grammar for this, this API endpoint? Cause you're not having to think about how does it migrate over time, right? Cause you, you've gotten something that stitches things together. And I, I found it kind of interesting because it reminded me of a, another article by um, Sam Newman about uh, a design pattern or a software architecture pattern, uh, BFF. And that's not best friends forever. This is um, <laughs> <laughs> this is back ends for front ends, where it, it takes a very similar approach of, you know, you've got these general purpose uh, web service APIs and, uh, you know, generally microservices. And then instead of having, you know, your API teams always trying to chase the mobile clients or, or other clients that, that come down the pike and say, oh, well, uh, we don't have a service that does exactly what that thing needs. So we've got to create, you know, another endpoint for this. Um, it actually gives people the flexibility to say, okay, well, if you are the mobile client and you know what you need, if you create a, a middle layer that stitches together the content that you need, then everything's great. If there's another client that needs something kind of different, they can stitch something together too and, and sort of decouple uh, the traditional like backend API microservices team from the, you know, I need to throw bits on a screen, um, you know, client team. Um, I've not actually done any of this before. Um, I've worked in sort of the more traditional routes where a backend first person or it maybe even me was responsible for for dealing with the api I've, i don't know if either of uh, if you two gentlemen have, have dealt with us 
Any any thoughts? No, I I haven't. This this looks really interesting to me. Actually, I'm kind of scanning through it right now. Uh, one thing that I will point out that they're kind of careful to to not mention, I think, is that this is not restful at all, as far as I can tell. And and there's there there are religious wars, quote religious wars over over that. Um, a lot of back end people are well, and, and front end people as well are are of the mindset that that uh, everything should be just a single every call should represent a single piece of data, right? And and moving back and forth, that's a whole that's a whole restful concept. And and this kind of does away with all that. And and to be honest, I'm I'm not sure that's a bad thing uh, because. I think uh, in the mobile world, it's, it doesn't always make sense to just have a call be a essentially an API call be essentially the same as you know a database lookup where you're just trying to pull a piece of data. It doesn't always make sense to just do that. So I kind of like this concept. Again, I, this is my first exposure to it, so I have to look at it a little bit more deeply. But I kind of like it. Yeah, I think the superpower for GraphQL. For me, is that uh, as Jaime mentioned, it's sort of request coalescing. You don't have to say, "Give me all yeah. of the employees," and you get it. And it's like, okay, find all the ones right. with this, and then give me their names. And then it's like, okay, and it's like, okay, now based on the name, look, it's like that's way too much stuff. And also, um, we were talking about SQL before, like the traditional ways is you would say select star from whatever, and you would just get all of the fields back, which can waste a lot of space. And so again, the thing about GraphQL is you can just say, "Here's the." kind of entity that I want, possible search parameters, here are the fields that I want back. And if those fields are sort of like joins and those are themselves records, you can then say, okay, and of that um, company field, I just need the name and the address, but all the other crap, just forget about it. And then you send that through. And, but, and the other thing I like... But I think it's I think it's even more... Sorry to interrupt you, mm-hmm. Greg, but I think it's even more than that, if I'm understanding it right, where you mentioned that you, know, you would set up your request being, here's my entity, and then filter it. But it seems like it's more than that. It's it's not about a single entity. You can say, here's all the things related to some function that I need to do. Mm-hmm. And I may need, you know, seven different entities. I need one one photo image. I need three model objects. Mm-hmm. I need uh you know, et cetera, et cetera. And you can you can kind of put that all together into one into your JSON description, your query. And then you get all that back at once. Am I understanding that right? Yeah, it's That's it's not it just. I mean, if you had a particular yeah. ID that you wanted to look up, then you can get mm-hmm. that and get one record back. But you can also, like we were talking about before, you can do a filter and say, "I want this kind of thing," and put a limit on it as well, just like SQL, and you will get multiple mm-hmm. records back mm-hmm. as well. And the other thing, the second part I like about the syntax is the request matches the response, and so it makes them very easy to. It's it kind of lacks surprise, right? You say, right, right. Uh, in this example, it's like ID additional information is price hidden. And then the, the JSON you get back, surprise, surprise, it's ID additional information is price hidden. So you get back exactly what you asked for, which I like. And I believe on the back end, I think as Jaime mentioned with like versioning. So if you um, additional information doesn't exist in the version of the server that you're talking to for whatever reason, then I think it just comes back as nil. Like that's an option. It'll just come back as null or false or whatever. Um, if it's, if it's not available and if it is, then it'll fill in the data. So it's almost a little, it can be almost a little objective C like where, um, you know, calling nil is like a no op. So it's kind of like that with the searches sometimes. Um, but yeah, I really like the putting it all together into one request and then, Again, it looks JSON-ish, and then the data that comes back is JSON as well. So I'm definitely a fan. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. something to be said about um, having very straightforward mapping between those uh, those things because I've uh, mm-hmm. I've worked in an environment where an item, you know, in the database became a thing on the wire, which became some other thing when it was being mapped, and then became an item again on the local client database. When yeah. I asked the question, like, oh, why isn't it just an item all the way through? <laughs> so it's really hard to keep in my right. head. Well, just as an aside, this is this is one of the reasons that I'm looking forward to having Swift on the server, so that you could do things like have the same model definitions on both ends, and uh, say, for example, you use Cordata or some of the database on on both ends, and you want to sync them up, then you can you can guarantee because everything is written in the same language, you can use the same you know the equivalent of header files or whatever. Uh, you can you can always guarantee that what's what's being uh, sent over the wire exists on both ends and without any kind of mapping. That's that's what I'm looking forward to about having all this stuff uh, about having Swift on the server side. The other cool feature yeah, that was just an aside. other cool feature about GraphQL I'll mention is there is a thing called Graphical. That's Graph I Q L. So it looks like GraphQL, but they call it Graphical. Anyway, it's almost like a playground, and you can. Um, there's a link here to something called GraphQL Hub. Um, I put a link in the notes as well for it. And you can query, it says query popular APIs using GraphQL in your browser. So for example, you can click on Twitter or GitHub or Reddit. And then on the left is the GraphQL code. It's kind of like a JavaScript fiddle or a Swift playground on the web. And it's got the GraphQL on the left, and then you hit the play button. And then it actually runs the query and shows you the results on the right. So it's a really good example just to see um, what a query looks like and what a response looks like. And then this actually is working. It's actually calling out to Twitter or GitHub or Reddit or whatever else. So if you just want to play around and see what GraphQL is all about, I, li- I really like these kind of web-based tools to let you play around with the, um, I was going to call it the API. Not quite API, but um, making these kind of queries uh, through GraphQL. Yeah, yeah Check that, it out if you're interested. That was really cool. I did try the GraphQL hub one with the, the Twitter example and um, mm-hmm. You know, put in my own Twitter ID. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's me. I have, uh, let's see, tweets count 20,154. Wow. <laughs> uh, my most recent tweet was to uh, a friend of mine related to the um, using Flask with the Amazon Echo. And I was like, wow, that is super powerful. Oh, and before I forget about um, Orda's blog post, uh, as if there wasn't enough controversy, uh, he says, with with uh, just being funny, Um They've also are using um, React Native in one view controller in their app, and not only just React Native, but also Relay that goes with that. Where uh, they're saying here that Relay, you know, views can declare a fragment of the GraphQL query that their respective view needs, uh, putting it in in a very unusual spot. I think for for most folks, it feels much more like a um, like a data binding mechanism, where they say here, like, oh, um, you know, the biography view declares, you know, you need to grab a bio and a blurb for, for my particular needs. So that's also like a very sort of different way of thinking about it versus like other architectural pieces where, you know, that content is hidden way, way, way down and, and abstracted away through like, you know, models and view models possibly somewhere in the line. I was going to ask you that, is that data binding? Is that the view saying I am going to show this person's bio and I'm going to put the GraphQL fragment right in here for bio, and then that will just show up in the view when it's done? 
I'm not I'm, familiar with relay or what all this stuff is, but that's kind of what it looked like to me. It was like a, a binding of you to a like a model or some kind of bit of data that's coming from GraphQL. Yeah, I'm I'm not a, a I don't know anything at all about React Native or Relay, but when I when I read what's written here in the article and the little code snippet about you know uh, Relay dot create container around the uh, the biography and saying like fragments you know for the artist uh, the Relay QL fragment is on um, artist which sounds like a like an entity with bio and blurb and presumably if you had you know other things on there like you know, gallery or some other bits, those are probably defining their own little bits as well. And if it wasn't here in this article, it might've been in some of the the articles that order links to uh, within this blog post about um, almost having like server-based view models in this scheme. Mm-hmm. It's not a hundred percent, you know, view models because view models still do a, a fair amount of, of transformation and you wouldn't want your server to necessarily always be worrying about, you know, transforming things in just a particular way that you would want for the client. Um, if only for things like, uh, user local preferences or, uh, locale settings, uh, th- those would be kind of dicey to, to pre-do on the, on the server. Um, but it still kind of fits right where you're, you're sort of just like asking exactly for what you need and plumbing it straight through is, is I think the, the point there. Yeah, I did a little bit of Angular, and it just kind of reminded me a little bit of that. And I was just thinking, wow, is this actually calling out to the server and getting the data? Like, this is, that's amazing. But yeah, I'm not familiar enough with React Native or Relay or any of this stuff. Maybe GraphQL, yes, but the other stuff, not so much enough to know exactly how it's working. So um, yeah, I was just curious about that. Mm-hmm. It'd be like a cocoa binding that could that could do network calls to get its data. Yeah, exactly. Like it's not just this field goes to this yeah. view, but the one yeah. where it does the last mile as well. And it's like, oh, I will fetch that data for you too, you know? So that seemed pretty cool if that's how it works. Well, have you guys ever used core data in iCloud? I like the core data not. syncing, the iCloud core data syncing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, isn't there a isn't there a version where the database is completely stored in the cloud and you basically just do your queries to the cloud yeah i think it there is still like behind the, there is still like a local copy behind the scenes and it, a local syncs, copy. Okay. it syncs yeah. the changes it's almost like a transaction i, th- I don't know it's, it's like it's a yeah, transaction yeah. Okay. log that goes okay. but yeah i've tried it before with mixed results yes okay yeah yeah well where i was headed with that was this would be sort of similar if that existed this would be similar to having say a fetch results controller mm-hmm talking to that remote version of, of core data, the remote database without going through anything local, but maybe it's, it's different. Hmm. Are you using it, Mark? I know you're the core data cheerleader. No, I, I don't use it. Yeah, no, I, I don't use, I don't use it in the cloud at all. Okay. No, I use it locally okay. all the time, but I don't use it in the cloud. Okay. All right. We've got this other article here, Mac rumors, iPhone seven. I'm not sure who put that. Was that none of us again? Uh, actually that might've been me. I mentioned something about, Flush touch sensitive uh, home button. Yeah, okay. yeah. So Mac Rumors was spreading a rumor, uh, which <laughs> As they, do. they want to do. Yep. Uh, that uh, one of the new features in the iPhone 7, which, you know, we've been hearing that there's not going to be too much different, actually. I guess we've been hearing a lot about that. But, but this would be a pretty significant change if it happens. And what they're saying is that they're going to introduce a touch. A, a home button that actually is part of the screen as opposed to being a separate button 
And so it would be flush to the surface it would, and, and handle force touch. I think they said it would be like if you have a force touch trackpad. It's, I mean, it technically does move a little bit, but the click is sort yep. of entirely simulated, let's say, with a little bit of haptic feedback and a little bit of sound. I think this is going to feel like you're clicking the home button as usual, but it's just going to be like a force right. touch uh, trackpad. Yeah, so it's not a physical button anymore. That's what I was going to yeah. check. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so that that uh, that would make a lot of sense, I guess. And and actually, that it's it's similar in concept to uh, what they were saying about now about the new MacBook Pros, along with the the LED function keys, the OLED function keys, mm. that they will presumably have some kind of force touch pad as well in there. So it could be a kind of similar technology going into this. Hmm. So, so maybe this, maybe this, uh, these little bits of rumor together are all implying something big is coming. Yeah. Kind of One thing I have noticed using iOS 10 on my iPad is I, cause there's no touch ID on my iPad. And so I, Mm-hmm. Open the smart cover. I get the lock screen. I, of course, slide to unlock. And then I get the list of widgets. And it's like, oh, you have to push the home button. And then it will ask for your passcode. So I don't know how that works with Touch ID. If you still have to actually push the home button once and just leave your finger on, and then that will do the unlock. But I'm I have to. I'm going to have to train myself out of swiping to unlock the phone and to actually push the button. So if that's the case, I can see maybe why Apple would want to get rid of the physical button and just say uh, you know just leave your thumb on there and just push a little bit more and then you know we'll detect that as a press so that seems cool to me Hmm, that's interesting so that's that's something that's built into ios 10 yeah because if you again this is on my ipad with a smart cover so when i open the cover the you know i see my wallpaper but if you swipe if you do the slide to unlock and swipe your finger towards the right then that's notifications if you're on the kind of Mm -hmm. home lock screen and you swipe towards the left that's now the shortcut for the camera, right? Okay, and so yep. if you actually, if I actually want to unlock the phone and I want to enter my passcode, I have to push the home button and then that brings up the, I have a complex alphanumeric password. So it brings up the keyboard. I type in my passcode, hit enter or done or whatever it is. And then that unlocks the phone. So whereas before I'm used okay, to opening okay. the smart cover, swipe, enter my passcode. Now I have to open the smart cover, push the home button and then enter my passcode. Right, right. Um, so again, this is on a non-touch ID device, so I don't know how it works on a with touch ID. If you if you have to, you know, push the home button and leave it on there, because I know a lot of people with iPhone the uh, 6s and 6s Plus, because that the touch ID is so fast, a lot of people were like, "Oh no, I want to see the lock screen," and so I have to either press the sleep wake button or I have to push the home button to wake up my phone with a finger that's not registered, so I can see the notifications on the screen. So maybe this is also mm. Apple's response to the Touch ID being so fast is that they want one more action to unlock your phone now that the uh, the list of widgets is so useful and the quick access to the camera is pretty cool. Right, and you're doing it on an iPad. So I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that. So they talked a lot about iPhone having the raise to wake. So you raise to wake, you can see your lock screen, and then you, mm-hmm. you just put your finger on the Touch ID sensor and it unlocks. Uh, therefore yeah. solving the problem of like, oh no, the touch ID is way too fast. Uh, yeah. So there's no click. Is that what you're saying? Race to wake and then just touch your thumb to the touch ID and that will unlock it. No, I, no click needed. I might be not remembering, but that's, that wouldn't surprise me because that's, that's sort of how it works on. Um, so I have a, a six plus and uh, you know, if I get a notification and my, you know, my lock screen lights up, 
I can just, you know, lightly put my, my finger on there on, on the home button without actually pressing down and it will register and unlock. So I don't, I don't see why it would be um, any different for, for iOS 10 where, you know, raise to wake and then just lightly have your finger on, on the touch ID sensor so it can register and then unlock. I'm not a hundred percent clear about uh, your situation with iPad. Like, I don't know if that's intentional or not. Like I don't remember them talking about raise to wake with, uh, with iPad. Yeah, I should, I guess, take off the smart cover and try it out and just pick it up and see what happens. I don't have it uh, close at hand. But, um, yeah, you're right. They never mentioned the iPad. So maybe I'll test it out and uh, send some follow-up. Uh, there's also a note here saying that the physical home button is, like, the thing that breaks the most. Although I haven't heard of breaking home buttons lately. I know back in, like, the iPhone 4 days, it was a big deal. But um, I'm sure they're glad to get rid, get rid of one more moving part. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I'm... I'm- I've also not had that problem for a long time, nor heard of anybody with that, but I'm extra paranoid. So I try to use the home button as little as possible. <laughs> <laughs> I use a, I, I've never had that problem. I have never had it either, but I have, um, cause all of my, my family, they give me their old phones when they're done with them. And I think I don't have one from my family members. I don't have one phone with a sort of hundred percent working home button. So I don't know what these people are doing, but hmm. all of my phones are, are perfectly fine. So Maybe they're throwing them around or they have very heavy thumbs or something. Yeah, it was like the 4 or the 4S that um, that had the replacement um, home button program. Mm-hmm. And I, I distinctly remember it was one of those two devices because I, I tried to be smart. And I was like, aha, well, I'm going to use the power button and not use the, you know, just to kind of look and see what, what what's on the screen. Oh, on your power button. Yeah, guy. I had an iPhone 5 power <laughs> yeah. button. Die. I was like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. And the 5S, they, like, beefed I, I it up because everybody yeah. was just as brilliant as I was. I had the dead power button on one of my phones. And on my iPhone 4, I had the broken uh, mute switch. Did you ever have that one? I have never no, had that. never no. had that. The, the rocker switch on the side yeah. that, that mutes on and off, that snapped off. On, on, I think it was my iPhone 4 way back when. And just to prevent any more more than just code regrets the error, that's, of course, the sleep-wake button that we're talking about, not the power button. Oh, is that what it's officially called? I mean, <laughs> right. I yeah, believe yeah. so, yeah. yeah. yeah Everyone calls it the power button, but it is officially the sleep-wake right. button, I think. Just like it's not the mute switch, it's something else? I forget what it's called. Isn't that one called something else? The ringer silent button? Because, you know, it doesn't actually mute the phone, like if you have an alarm. So I think they don't like to call it the mute switch. Oh, uh, yeah, the silent ringer button? I forget button. what they call yeah, it. That may yeah. be... Yeah. Yep. Um, all right. Just to prevent any yep. feedback from coming in. Although we do love the feedback. Right. All right. right. <laughs> Should we go around the table and sure. see if anybody has any picks and perhaps stop at Mark first? My pick was an article on The Verge uh, that we'll put the link in to the show notes talking about the, the title is The Ultimate Apple IO Death Chart, which is a great title. <laughs> uh, and, but it's kind of a fun little article. It's not too long and it's, it's actually fairly light. Uh, but it's a it's a history they've compiled of all the different ports, I/O ports, on the different hardware, Macs and and iPhones, etc. Going back to essentially the beginning of Apple, you know, early early eighties, uh, starting with the ADB, which was for those of you who remember that was a proprietary Apple uh, port that was used to connect keyboards and and uh, and mice. Uh, that looking at the chart that lasted from 1985 or so to uh, to just before 2000, so that must have been just in the in the Mac, uh, the early Macs, mm-hmm. and it goes through you know, everything: SCSI, VGA, 
floppies, CDs, DVDs, all, uh, all the way up to Lightning Thunderbolt and HDMI. And really the, the, the main feature that they're trying to point out in, in compiling this is the headphone jack. The headphone jack is the one jack that's been around forever, since the beginning of, of time in, in Apple in Apple terms, uh, and, and you know everywhere else it's ubiquitous, right? These three and a half millimeter or two and a half millimeter, uh, you know, cylindrical plugs. Yeah, you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You if you'd seen them, and and the rumor is that that's going away in the iPhone seven to be replaced by a lightning connector. It's it's kind of interesting. Uh, to, to just take a look at the chart and you know some from a high level view and see these things do not last forever these technologies and in fact the lifespan except for the headphone jack seems to be about 15 years plus or minus uh, I remember when floppy drives went away and it was the you know the the most crazy decision ever made and how can they possibly ship a, a computer without a floppy drive was was sort of the conventional wisdom at the time. And now, you know, who even notices, right? There's not even a, a, an optical drive in most of these devices. So, so just it's just kind of interesting. It's you know, there's, there's nothing earth shattering here, but it, it kind of gives a nice perspective on on how things change and and how time you know time goes by. Uh, and if the headphone jack does go away, well, we won't notice it after a few years. It, things will something else will come along and replace it. But it's a fun article. It's it's a real quick read. And the chart is really the main the main takeaway that's uh, that's in, in the article. It's just kind of an interesting thing. A little bit of history. Poor Firewire. Yeah, Firewire. I mean, it, it was around for a long time. You know, it was around for fifteen years, but it just kind of never never quite caught on, unfortunately. Yeah, um, it is interesting to see these laid out like this because I think, somewhat anecdotally, the the general populist feeling is that Apple is coming out with new connectors all the time and it's yeah, you know, like right like every now. every year there's a new connector and it's actually quite the quite the opposite there's not, not nothing yeah. is shorter here uh, than what seven or eight years it looks like uh, maybe kind of VGA is mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. it looks about 10 year under 10 year ish for sure yeah 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 mm-hmm. and and apple wasn't driving that one the change is there right and um not to get too far into you know, i've certainly heard several bits of, of radio and then read several uh, different diatribes about the uh, the headphone jack. And I think people are comparing it to the, the wrong thing. I don't think it's comparable to the floppy, which, you know, was an altogether different thing where you have something that is intensely ubiquitous and is at the time that they're talking about, I, I've heard some folks say, Oh, well, there were better options like, you know, I Omega's zip discs, which zip yeah, yeah. Let me tell you, I had 20 of those damn things and, and they were not better. Yep. Like they, they had better attributes, but they were not better. If you remember the click of death, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yes. Oh, I, I know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. From that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like, Oh, they were, you know, CDRs. I'm like, uh, no, they were hella expensive at the time you're talking about. And you know, broadband wasn't available. So what were you going to do if you had 10 megabytes of stuff that you wanted to give to your friend, you were going to get out 10 floppy disks and use that. Cause it was cheap and easy, right. To sneaker net it. You're not going to burn a, a full dollar to $2 on a CDR. Like that's, that's just crazy. I, was like, I just want to give this person one file. Um, mm-hmm. and the other thing that I would compare it more accurately to is probably the 30 pin when that went away. Right. When, when, 
there was talk of like, it's going to go away. Everybody was losing their minds. Like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe I have all these connectors. I have, you know, all these docks I've bought, you know, my entire life revolves around this 30 pin connector. And my, my, by golly, I just bought a BMW and it has the 30 pin connector. I, they're screwing me over. And, uh, and I think that was the one where everyone said, Oh, Apple's always changing the port and the connector when lightning came out. And it was like, I don't know if people were like crazy or, don't know, but I think that's when the sentiment first came out of Apple always yeah. getting rid of this stuff, even though the 30 pin kind of shipped with the iPod and, you know, that was the first connector or well, I guess Firewire shipped with the original iPod, but yeah. Yeah. And, and at the time we didn't know all of the benefits that, that lightning would bring. I was like, well, okay, it's a little bit smaller and okay, you know, maybe it charges a little faster and then other bits, nothing that would have like, if you went back to that time, you definitely wouldn't have been like, oh man, you you have to throw away all of these and go to this new standard. And I think it's very similar in my head with the headphone jack of like, yeah, it's going to be a somewhat awkward transition. But then, you know, five years from now, you'd be like, holy smokes, who the heck is still using the old headphone jack? That's crazy. It's terrible yeah. for X, Y, and Z reasons. Yeah, the next generation will will wonder, will be shocked to hear that we ever had headphones that were connected by a wire to, to a device. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, as I sit here looking at my keyboard and mouse, which are not connected by wires. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. All right. That was Mark's pick. Of the- I had to go back. That was Mark's pick of the week. Hi, man. Do you have a pick or two or ten or fifteen? Uh, <laughs> I only have uh, I only have two this time. Um, the first one is Git Standup. So this is a, a little tool that you can get from, uh, well, it's open source. You can get it from Homebrew. What else? Um, you can use NPM to install it. You can install the thing using curl. Like there's all sorts of options. Uh, all it is, is just a real quick sort of plugin for your, your Git usage. So if you're like me and you're in an environment where, um, you do standups or, you know, weekly reports or whatever the case may be, where you kind of need to remember what did you do? you know, yesterday, or what did you do last week? What happened on Friday? Uh, I'm really terrible at remembering those things, especially on the Friday to Monday timeframe. And just by running this one command, you know, get stand up, it'll show you the um, abbreviated version of what you yourself did in your, your Git repository. So you can be like, oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I did these five things. That's what I did yesterday. Thank you very much. And, uh, I've also found it useful in, in situations where I've had to um, report somebody else's status, right? It's like, oh, so-and-so is going to be out of the office. Oh, okay. Well, uh, I guess I got to represent their side at the uh, the daily meeting. Like, holy smokes, what did they do? What did they say? Like, well, I'll just go look in the repo and say, oh, this is what they did. I literally know what they did because they, they committed it to the Git repo. So it's 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 not like a mind-blowing thing. And, and if you're, you know, off by yourself, uh, it, like as an independent developer or, or something like it, it may not be the most useful thing, but if you're in you know, larger team environments, I, I find it really helpful. And pick number two, pick number two is, um, you know, it, it, it's not really new. It's, it was new to me cause I'd forgotten that this is capable in uh, iOS nine. So it's not fancy new like iOS 10, but it's, uh, detecting low power mode. So, um, what we have a link in the show notes is for a blog post on, you know, what it is that you can do with that and, and how you can detect it. And I, I tried this out and it's, it's pretty nifty. So if the user has, um, has decided to put their device into low power mode or they're in that really critical, I think it's sub 5% where the device switches itself into low power mode. You can listen for that, that, that sort of event happening, or you can detect uh, right from the get go that you're in there. 
and if you decided to do so, you could do whatever's appropriate for your app, right? Like maybe, maybe you stop trying to, um, perform some sort of, uh, image indexing, or maybe you turn off the, um, the, uh, GPS, or maybe you switch it to more of a, a low power mode. Like, okay, I don't really need to know as frequently. Just let me know when there's major changes in, in direction or location, you know, that sort of thing. I thought that was, it was mind-blowingly easy to do. There's one, like two or three different methods that you can call or notifications to listen to. You can be not only like a good citizen, um, as folks get kind of grumpy about battery usage on their, on their devices from apps, but also it's, it's also just nice because you can decide like what is critical for your app, right? Like there's maybe a billion different things that your app is trying to do, um, to provide like a full meal deal service. But if you're like, okay, like, uh, there's only so many people that can get on the raft, uh, you can do the priority and the urgency. Okay. These subcritical, you know, subsystems, they they can shut off for now until we get into a power situation. So I highly recommend people uh, take a quick look at this because it's, it's a real easy read. Sounds like we'll need a, an update to uh, the black box app. If it's not already in there (laughs) to use this, (laughs) if you know, you know, (laughs) I won't go into it. anymore. We'll sound the spoiler horn before that one. Um, right. All right. I have just one pick. Uh, I can't be outdone or uh, I'll have to be outdone by Jaime this week. And it is the unofficial macOS WWDC app. So I believe this was released last year, but it is, I'm just going to pick it again. And it's a app for macOS or OS 10, whatever you want to call it, because it does run on the current version. And it is a player app. So it has the video on the WWDC video. It kind of shows an index of them. You can go back previous years and it'll show the video on the left and it'll also show you the captions on the right so you can follow along. And it has the all important um, change the playback speed if you want to watch it at one and a half or two X speed or whatever you want. Uh, So it's an open source app. You can download the source code, build it yourself, and then you'll have a nice Mac desktop interface to watch your WWDC videos. And of course, it's on GitHub, so it's open source, and it's written in Swift. So if you want to poke around, and I always like just reading other people's code and doing, uh, well, at work, I mean, like doing code reviews, things like that. But I like looking at other people's open source code. So if you just want to see a little bit of Swift code and how a Mac OS X app is built, then... uh, Check it out. So it's on GitHub, the unofficial macOS WWDC app. Now that's my pick. Too bad there's no tvOS version, huh? I think there's an official tvOS app for that, isn't there? Right. Yeah. There yeah. is. There is. But it doesn't do the changing speed. Ah, uh, right. I don't think you can... It doesn't have that. I don't think you, can have, you have access to that in the like AV player, do you? Anyway, I don't know. I don't know. But you're right. It's yeah, too bad that know. there's no. Maybe you should take that on as a project, Mark. You can port this. Yeah, maybe port so. this over the TVOS. Kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. Although I am finding that this year, I'm not watching the videos at higher speed like I always have in the past. Hmm. And and uh, I mean, there there could be two reasons that I'm thinking of for that. Actually, one is that I'm mostly watching them on the Apple TV, so I can't do that. So I've gotten used to watching them at normal speed. Uh, but the other thing is, I, if I'm not mistaken. The talks were mostly shorter this year. Uh, most of the talks were 40 minutes long, and by the time they got finished editing them, a lot of them are only 30 or 35 minutes long. Yeah. So that doesn't seem like as much of a of a time commitment as as the you know, close to an hour talks that they have been in the past. Hmm. Okay, good point. So maybe it's right. Not- right. Uh, I do think that um, that the playback speed can be definitely killer, though, if you're um, 
I mean, I, I listen to, to oh, audio yeah. that same, or podcasts that, that same way. And, uh, one thing I would like if somebody out there can, can implement this feature, uh, I want sort of like a variable speed, right? Where, uh, simply going at like one and a half X to two X, like blindly, like, oh, okay, that's, that's cool. But, you know, if you use overcast, the, the podcast app, you know, the smart silences thing is really cool because it removes, you know, dead silences. Um, and compresses it. So you kind of get even more time back, but I almost want kind of like a slightly different opposite, you know, complementary feature, like time dilation, because like, you know, anytime, so I'm product managing this, this thing here. So any, anytime like the, the, the <laughs> Apple people start going and saying like, Oh, like you have to create a wonderful app and we can't wait to, to see what you do with, okay, just, just, just run that at three X. Like they say that every time, right? It's so cliche. And yeah. yeah on the time dilation part, anytime they throw a giant slide that shows like, here are all of these methods or here are all of these frameworks. Like I want that to be at like half X or quarter X. So I have enough time to read it and I'm like, Oh no, no, oh, wait, 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 stop, stop, stop. And then I have to go and, and, you know, scroll back like 30 seconds to try to find and pause exactly on that one yeah. slide that they showed for yeah. half a second. Yeah. And with the, with the, uh, what do we call it? The, the panning bar, what there's a name for that. The, uh, but the the bar the bar that adjusts the position that's it's not very accurate so you're always going too far back and then you have to yeah you need like a, a, little a bit thirty second and... skip and a fifteen second back or a five second back button something like, like that yeah, exactly. on podcast yeah. players mm-hmm. mm. well yep. maybe you should file an issue and maybe somebody will fix it on this repository who knows who yeah knows? I might go ahead and do that because that'd be super <laughs> useful or if we do this tvos version we can use the Siri remote <laughs> to to uh, to do that. Uh, Siri, go faster, and it speeds it up and just starts talking faster. Uh, Siri's I don't know who's going to do Jaime's job of uh, annotating every video and finding the sort of quote-unquote interesting parts and the not-so-interesting parts and giving time markers for that, but uh, maybe someone can also take on that project if you file an issue. Well, we can use the new the new neural network <laughs> functionality to have it learn. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's going to be like a really hard problem, but I think the simple approach is like find any slide that has a ridiculous amount of text on it, like an, a statistically different kind of text on it. Cause those are usually the slides I like, right. Where they've listed out every API or they've listed out uh, every one of the new frameworks because most of their slides are, you know, three to five bullets, very little text in general, more graphics. So I think you could train that just from an OCR standpoint, just count the number of words on the screen <laughs> and then time dilate from, from that index. Do the simple thing first. Always good advice. Exactly. All right. Well, I think that's episode 98 in the can. And uh, Jaime, if people want to find you out there on the internet, where should they look? On Twitter as at Dev with the Hair. And Mark, if people want to get in touch with you? you can send me an email at uh, markr at smapsoft.com. And I am Greg Heo on Twitter. That's G-R-E-G-H-E-O. And we'll be back to regularly scheduled programming next week for episode 99. Um, just want to thank again our Ask MTJC askers. That was Troy Hanna. Noel O'Brien and Tim himself sent in a question, which we didn't answer, but it was kind of a silly question anyway. So if you do have anything that you'd like to ask or for us to address on an episode, just put hashtag AskMTJC and uh, your hosts will have a look at it. That's it for this week, and we'll see you next week. Well, I'll say bye now. Goodbye. Bye. bye. <laughs> and scene. And That's scene. for Aaron, even though he's not here. Yeah. 
Hey, if you want to find out more about the show, you can visit the More Than Just Code website at mtjc.fm. There, you can find a summary and show notes of each episode. We list links to the items that we talk about on the show, as well as links to the apps on the App Store. Hey, if you like the podcast, please leave a comment on the website. And if you could also write a review on iTunes, that would be amazing. And if you're listening on Overcast, go ahead and press the recommend button now. I'll wait. It really helped others find out about the show. You can also follow us on Twitter. The podcast Twitter account is at MTJC underscore podcast. And if you'd like to support us, you can pledge any amount on patreon.com slash MTJC. Thank you so much for listening. Love you guys. He's in LA. Yeah, he's down yeah, visiting yeah. his Disney people. Maybe I know. They're doing the maybe they're partying or something, taking him out on the well, town. You know, I, I seem to remember. Uh, maybe I'm imagining it, but I, I seem to remember getting a little bit of crap from Aaron when I was busy at work and couldn't make the because <laughs> I was traveling to LA and couldn't make the the uh, podcast. But anyway, well, Aaron on. doesn't travel much, so you got to give him cut him a little slack. You know, you're all over the place all okay. over the time, Mark. So that's like normal. Whereas Aaron is. Uh, I have never known him to leave the greater, Toronto, the greater Toronto area. No, I've seen him at meetups, yeah, downtown okay, Toronto, okay, but right. the greater Toronto area right, I was going to see. Fair enough. Um, fair enough. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah. Right. Tim, though, another concert. Unbelievable. He doesn't go to that many concerts. He has concerts. missed two recordings because of concerts in the last three, four months. I forget how long. So, yeah. He goes to a lot of... That, 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 that's, a, that's a fair amount. That's just the Wednesday concerts, too, right? There could be concerts on, on other days that we've never heard about. Well, that's true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just I just went to a concert last Saturday up in uh, Redwood City. Not oh yeah, too far. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, you used to live right by there, Greg. Right? I used to live in Redwood City. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. This was. Did you ever go downtown to downtown Redwood City at all? I did. Yeah, I liked it. The it was Fo- nice. You know, you know the Fox Theater there. No, huh? although I do, I did, I do remember passing a theater. I don't remember the name of it, but maybe I know. Yeah, what it's, that it's is. one of these. It's one of these old. You know, it used to be a movie theater way back when. That's converted over to a concert. Yeah. Yeah. Event. Yeah. Yeah. So I saw Buckethead there. We were talking about this last week. Okay. okay. Yeah, that's right. Uh, that didn't make it onto the show. That was definitely post post show. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know Great who that show. is. I'd have to. I'd have to Google it. It's it's he's he's out there. He's different. Um, yeah. It's a uh, he's a guitarist that. Oh, he actually a, has a bucket on his head. Yeah. 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 He's he's a phenomenal. I mean, I mean, phenomenal guitarist. I mean, he's possibly the you know the one of the the top five guitarists ever uh just in terms of skill i mean he's just unbelievably skilled but he's insane does he wear a mask <laughs> yeah he wears a mask there's a mask okay and and the bucket used to be he he actually got a new bucket for this tour uh it used to be just a a kentucky fried chicken bucket yes that he'd wear yes uh now he just got a nice plain minimalist white bucket that he's wearing Oh, okay, but, um, okay. With the lighting, I thought it was a pink bucket. Is what it looks like, but maybe it's the it's that's the, just the lighting, it's the yeah, stage lighting. It okay, was, it was yeah, it was just a way. And and he's he plays sort of, I mean, it's sort of a mix of metal. But... The Wikipedia page says it spans diverse areas such as progressive metal, funk, blues, yep. jazz, bluegrass, ambient, and avant-garde. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, it's it's just everything. He can play 
anything and he does you know he plays anything and everything it's just it's just amazing um so i recommend it if you ever if you ever comes actually i think he's playing at, is, he on, is he on spotify i'll go look him up i'm sure he is okay I'm sure he is. Yeah. <laughs> look it up he's he has i, I was it, it, did you notice this in wikipedia he has 250 approximately albums so I saw that's a number, a, really, 264 yeah, studio. I, yeah. I know this 260 because I, I thought of H264, and I thought, yeah, yeah, 264 studio albums. I wonder how many of them that's are on are on Spotify. It's got to be a few of them. <laughs> not all 264. No, probably <laughs> Maybe not. they have a limit. So that's my post-show pick of the week. All right, I'm going to check it out. And if you also look at the Wikipedia page, they have the only known photograph of him without his mask, if you're curious. Of course, it's kind of a back side picture so it's not very good yeah. but i've actually seen him without the mask it's you've not, seen him without the mask yeah okay. yeah it's not not performing he always wears it when he's performing but i actually saw him uh this was almost 20 years ago now do a, a solo show uh down in santa barbara when i lived down there at this tiny tiny little club i mean there couldn't have been more than 30 or 40 people in the club and it was an all-acoustic set which was you know for him very unusual because he's usually really loud and 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 uh you know very very high energy but this was this was a like a a one-off thing of just he just played all acoustic and so he just showed up at the club and with his amp and a guitar and he's there before the show he's just there setting up his equipment without the mask on and he just he just looked like a regular guy i mean he was really (laughs) was just a regular guy then he put then he went behind stage came back out with the mask and the hat and and he was bucking (laughs) complete transformation but you can tell it was him because he's got a very unusual shape (laughs) in that he's he's very tall and and thin and has you know really long fingers and stuff i mean very kind of spiderish sort of almost um and uh, so it was clearly recognizable as him all right, he is on Spotify. But, there are maybe fifty. I didn't count them, but there may, maybe like fifty records yeah. are on here. Well, so you know, if you like that style of music and you kind of won't know until you try it, uh, then you'll then you'll really like him. Not a, he's not everybody's cup of tea. I have to be honest about that. Okay. Um, if you like stuff like um, uh, Primus, you know, Les Claypool. Mm-hmm. I don't know if these mm-hmm. ring any bells. If you yeah. like that kind of stuff, then you'll probably like him. He also he was in a band once called uh, Guns N' Roses. You ever heard of them? <laughs> <laughs> he, he really was. I mean, this was after they were. This is after they were really big. He he joined them after Ax, What's his name? Slash. Well, I guess was the first guitarist. Mm-hmm. He left, and they needed a replacement for him. Um, so he so he joined for a couple of years to tour. Uh, so um, yeah, I mean, he plays some you know relatively accessible stuff, but a lot of his stuff is pretty out there. All right, I'm curious now. Uh, Mostly curious yeah. about to get into the mind of Dr. Rubin, see what kind of music he listens to. So oh, uh, I'm going to check it out. I listen to a lot of different music, so uh, that could take a long time. <laughs> All right, Tim just checked in with me on Slack saying, did you guys start later? And I was like, oh, how did he know? I just told him we were wrapping up, and yes, we started an hour later, so... We started at a civilized West Coast. I was time. just gonna say I didn't have to <laughs> yeah, rush. Was, I did. Cute. I did rush home anyway, just in case. But I didn't have to rush home. I I rushed home and I still. Oh, maybe I'll eat something. I can you know, go collect the mail and go through it. So it was nice. It was nice. Yeah. And uh, oh, so we, we we talked about this on the show um, the last time. I think it ended up in the after show. Uh, you are working for Instagram, right? That's where you you ended up. That is like correct. I saw that on a Realm video. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. Instagram is it? Okay. Cool. Cool. Cool deal. Yeah, man. You got you got to fix that. 
I, I had it in year. my mind. I had it in my OmniFocus, and then um, I was kind of in and out of the office today in other um, kind of post noob training sessions. So I wasn't actually at mm -hmm. my desk for very much, but I did have it on my list to look into that because maybe it is like somebody forgot to update the six plus. You said you have a six plus, right? A six plus. So like yeah, maybe yeah. someone forgot to update the three X asset and they updated the two X one or something like that. So I did have it on my list to look at, but I did not. But I do have my uh, work laptop here. And uh, I can always connect to the VPN and have a look. But uh, yeah, yeah, I, I didn't get to it, but I will send some follow-up. I will tweet some follow-up if I find anything. Awesome. The fact that you're on Instagram explains the Ask MTJC questions. <laughs> the ones that I didn't get to, you mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So the one guy asked, why is my Instagram map always in black and white? <laughs> that was Tim, yes. Oh, was that Tim? It was, yeah, M was MTJC was podcast. The podcast tweeted that out. Oh, it was. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. That, and then the guy replying to him asking, what... what protocol what video <laughs> protocols do you use <laughs> so i guess he was asking you <laughs> yeah yeah he mentioned me in there so i think he might work at does he still work at, it's no number does he still work at twitter yes he works at twitter oh um, uh, so so uh, he wants to know yeah, yeah yeah so i thanked him at the end of the show but i did not answer <laughs> we only got one real question uh which we answered but um yeah let's see this was episode 98 right yeah I think I made a folder. There was no folder. You guys are running out of folder, so I did make one, and I should be able to upload it there. We, we run out of them because they get saved for posterity and occasionally get recycled. Um, oh well, you you know, so, so that they're not you know they're not wasted. You know, is it like table view cells? You got to uh, <laughs> they're expensive to spin up, and you got to recycle them. Yeah, yeah. I, I never got a straight answer out of Tim on that one. I think maybe he's worried about like an. I note exhaustion or something that like <laughs> on Dropbox on System Nine or something. I don't know, <laughs> I don't know why he's recycling. <laughs> I don't think that's an issue anymore, but I guess.